One of the things that I really, really appreciate about listening to your podcast is your emphasis on working within uh, labor unions. And I work at a university and I am a representative for my local union, um, but I am a non-tenured person. (laughs) And so one of the things I'm finding really difficult is to push um, the members on my union, specifically the executive, but other folks who are in that space as well, who come to the kind of monthly meetings um, in terms of kind of moving the needle on these, um, on more progressive causes, certainly, but thinking specifically of anti-Black racism, um, tried to push them to do something on that in the summer. Like I followed up with them and kind of was like, what are we doing in terms of this huge thing that is happening? And because I figured, you know, maybe the union is having conversations that I'm not privy to and I want to be respectful of people's labor. So maybe there's conversations that are going on. And they were just like, we're not going to put a statement out on Black Lives Matter. We don't want to alienate our colleagues. Um, And my my executive is really conservative and they're kind of the same group of people who like rotate in and out of executive constantly. Mm. So I guess my question, sorry for the long preamble was if you have any advice or suggestions for people who may be in more precarious situations, so have less security, but want to push people who are more tenured, more secure, more, fine with things the way they are um to actually take action and to kind of um whether that's for anti-black racism or other causes to um to kind of push the needle on those conversations and kind of like force them to do something (laughs) i mean i'll just start with a quick story so this past summer i was supposed to do a workshop for the psac the public uh public service alliance of canada on um anti-black racism, anti-racism for white people. Okay. So I was, I was co-hosting it with Paige Gallette, who's an activist based in Yukon, who is a friend of Sandy Nora. I mean, who's our friend and also a friend of the show. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so this was, it made sense, right? It was like, Nora, you can talk to white people about racism and, and, and Paige, it can talk about her experiences being an activist and you two have a great rapport. So you can talk and it will be a non-threatening, welcoming conversation for white members of the union. And the Canada Border Services Agency, (laughs) those fucking assholes, um, freaked out that I was doing a workshop at all, Uh, especially because some person who said they worked at Disneyland uh, was like, anti-racism for white people, what the fuck? And I was like, hey, how about you eat some shit? And so the CBSA union was like, this must be canceled. Nora Loretto cannot be here. The rebel did a huge thing on it. And the reason why I'm talking about this is because it took this moment for the leadership of PSAC who canceled it. They bowed to the pressure of the, or the border services union, partly because there's internal politics where they're afraid that they're going to lose these folks as members because there's, there's rating that might be happening or is happening. And, um, and so they canceled it. And so what happened was this incredible reckoning between people who really don't normally have to talk about racism at all. Um, and people who are getting pressure from their membership who are like, why the fuck would you cancel this? There was a thousand people registered. Like it was just totally wild. And, um, and the president, uh, Chris Allward, um, changed his mind. Like he was the first person to be like, this is being canceled. There was a t- 10 hour meeting and then they were like, Hey, we're going to uncancel it. He totally apologized, put out a statement apologizing. And then the border services agency was still like, fuck Nora Loretto. So, I mean, I'm super glad that I'm not really traveling across the border right now. Cause I don't really need those guys to see my name on a passport, but you know, the next time it's going to be like, ah. 
So yeah, like you pushing against um, a union establishment that is reactionary is like pushing against anything that is reactionary. And I think the first thing that's really important is to remember that unions are not inherently progressive, right? They serve an economic function and the economic function is to make sure that labor relations in Canada work and that workers are not just not coming to work. Like they're just not going on wildcat strike. And so when we understand unions through that lens, then we can actually see it more as a confrontation to power rather than us trying to navigate people who are apparently on our side who don't agree with us. Um, And so with something like Black Lives Matter, I mean, I don't know what university you're at, but I I imagine you have black members, right? And so it's really important for the executive if they're like, this isn't our issue, where you actually like, fuck you, actually, like it is your issue, it is our issue. Um, and then you can have campaigns to to de- to demonstrate the extent that anti-black racism is impacting black workers on campus or the atmosphere on campus or whatever. And then you start to be able to organize people, identify the people who are willing to make these issues uh, so much a part of their work that they actually will get involved, that they'll become spokespeople. You train them as leadership and then boom, election happens. And then fuck the other the old guard gets uh, elected out. <laughs> Yeah, that I mean that's a roadmap right there. <laughs> the other thing though is it's like God, I fucking capitalism has finally understood that, you know, Black Lives Matter not a controversial statement. If your fucking executive of a fucking labor union can't get that, like are they are so anti-black that they can't get with where Nike's at, um there's like a serious internal uh, rearranging that needs to be happening because that that is a very intense commitment to fucking hating black people <laughs> with unions too though you can always be in touch with me um offline or online um elsewhere and i might be able to give you some ideas you can tell me what union it is i might know folks there right i might know folks i might know a bit of the history and be like oh yeah, that guy's got to die before anything changes you know, sometimes it is important to know who is like literally going to have to die at their desk before something changes. I actually, Lauren, really like Robert's rules, and <laughs> I'm willing to argue about that with anybody. <laughs> but I also, too, that was a reference to what's going on in the chat. But that I also, too, uh, you know, used to work at an academic union. So um, while I'm terrible at responding to uh, emails and messages that are sent to me, if you send it to Nora and say, Nora, tell Sandy about this, she will. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. i can that's true can, that's a secret uh help you out with that too you all being on this call tonight get that little secret that's the only way to contact sandy <laughs> uh hi um big thanks to you both for just all the work you've done as as activists and and on this podcast i appreciate it so much um my question is a little more selfish, but basically as a, a recent journalism grad myself, I admire so much what you've done, Nora, as kind of, a, you know, an independent, uh, critical journalist. Uh, and I just wonder if you have any advice for someone who's kind of looking to break into the field. You know, I got to be honest with you, because if you'd asked me the advice two years ago, I would have said drop out. <laughs> <laughs> Um, one of the, one of the wonderful things about my life is I, I didn't finish in journalism. Um, I, I did five years of the Ryerson journalism school. And then, um, I mean, I had to finish elsewhere because I couldn't do it part time and they still accept me as an alum. And so, um, it was like, first of all, understanding what kind of, um, what kind of, uh, act of like support is really meaningful. Like, I don't look for, um, 
I don't look for kind of praise from like the famous kind of journalists out there, but seeing my own school of journalism that I fucking fought tooth and nail, didn't even finish as an alum, like proudly share my articles, Ryerson journalism alum. And it's like, it's not true. <laughs> and they know it's not true, but they don't care because they, um, that, that is like the biggest meaning, most meaningful thing to me. Okay. That was self-indulgent. Um, how do you get into the world of, of whatever? So it's really hard for me to answer that question because my path uh, into journalism has always been, uh, very different. Um, I, I kind of faked it until one day I realized I was a good writer. Like I really spent five years just, just putting stuff out being like, yeah, I'm going to fucking be a journalist. And part of that was, you know, I edited a newspaper called the Ryerson Free Press that was unfortunately sued out of existence by a piece of shit uh, lawyer who um, is a fucking asshole, um, whose name is Andrew Monkhouse. But um, mm, the... I've heard of him. Yeah. 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 Sandy also is aware of this, this, this fellow. Um, and, and so, like, I learned, like, I guess, okay, here's the advice understand the tricks of the trade, right? Be a, be a good writer, be a good researcher, do interviews properly. Don't cut corners. Obviously don't plagiarize, do everything properly, right? If you're a left-wing person, this is the case for any job that you have. You have to know your craft. You have to master your craft and you have to be better at your craft than everyone around you. Because if you are a left-wing person and you have a critical perspective, you're never, ever going to get, you like, like I've never even had a mentor, right? I've never had a mentor. I've never had anyone reach out to me, be like, Nora, I want to help you understand this industry. I've had friends who, um, I mean, I was friends with the chair of the journalism department at Ryerson while I was there. Um, and, but, but like, he was a friend. I mean, we went for beer together and we just talked about politics and he was the first person to say to me that, um, I should be a columnist. And he said that to me when I was dropping out of the program. Um, so I think understanding what kind of journalism you want to do or where you're, you think you're best suited is really important. Pursue that. Um, figure out, um, how to make money, right? If that means you have to have a part-time job somewhere else, take that part-time job to give yourself the freedom to be able to do the writing, which is super low paid. Um, and also like, I just talked to a master's class at the school of journalism at Ryerson and, and someone was like, how do I, um, how do I say what I think without jeopardizing my future, right? Without pissing off like the censors. And uh, um, understand what level of comfort you are in being a shit disturber, right? Like, for me, if someone tells me that I cannot say something, I cannot stand it. Like, I just like, fuck, like, nope, 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 fuck off, right? Cannot, cannot handle that. And that means I have to accept the consequences of that, which the consequences being like, I can't even get my local Quebec City station to cover my own fucking work, right? It's like, okay, I guess. I mean, I'm friends with them, which is a bitter, a bigger problem, but that's a consequence that I have to live with. Um, and most people or some people are just aren't willing to do that. So if you're interested in checking out what the inside, the inside world of, of the mainstream media is, fuck, try it, check it out, see what it's like to work in a newsroom and, uh, figure out if you can work from the inside to change things, or if you really have to go on the outside and, and just experiment and do what you feel is most comfortable. Um, but always push forward, right? Always trying to make sure that every article you write is, the, is better. Every analysis you do is better. Um, every, uh, every fucking barb that you shoot at an enemy is like the best worded piece of shit fucking barb that you can come up with. Um, if you approach journalism like that, you'll, uh, most importantly, you'll, you'll enjoy it. Right? Okay. Any other questions? I also have a kind of self-indulgent question and it's because Nora, you've ended up in Quebec city, um, from Ontario and I, I live en région, um, in Quebec and I'm wondering if you can, talk a bit about uh, 
fitting yourself into the the political scene in like smaller cities in Quebec and dealing with the language um, divide of a lot of politics in Canada? Yeah. Um, so first of all, like, I think everybody should move to Quebec City. It is really a great place. <laughs> and I say that unreservedly, no matter who you are, you will all love this place. It is so wonderful. And re rent is cheap. I know you're making a face. It's like, are you crazy? It's like, you know, I'm not. It's great. Well, I am. But um, no. So uh, the thing when you're when you're doing politics in a different language, I had to like I learned French to be able to do politics here. That was really, really hard. Um, but it meant that I, the vocabulary that I learned is political vocabulary and it's possible. I mean, unless you're tone deaf, if you're tone deaf, learning a, another language can be very, very difficult. If you're not tone deaf, you can do it. It's hard, but it's, but you can do it. Um, and I mean, living in a, in Quebec city, living in any small town, I mean, my partner uh, did a lot of his political activism in London when he was doing, when he was at school in London. Uh, and now that we live here, it, like Quebec city really reminds him of London, Ontario, so, you know, Ottawa probably as well. Right. So it's a really small group of people like the the anarchists hate the socialists. There's literally like three generations of people like in every political tendency. So people are, are activists with their grandparents and their parents, uh, which is really charming, I find. Um, but you also learn really quickly who's who's ex or who's the parent of who. Like that's a whole other level of shit that I think is a little bit unique to Quebec, figuring out the, the, the parenting lines um, of, of who on the left. Um, and, um, it's it, like it, the, this Quebec city is a kind of place for me. I know I'll always be an outsider. I know people will always hear my accent. They will always ask if I, if I'm an Anglophone, I mean, it happened yesterday at the park with a woman wearing a full fur coat and then she went on the swings. She was in her eighties. I thought that was pretty sweet. Um, and so I, like for me, I'm comfortable knowing that I'll always be an outsider. I'll never be part of the majority here. Um, I have a friend of a, a crew of Anglophones that live here as well. We're all very comfortable with that knowledge. And it means that, um, I feel like I have a, a, a particular role to play, um, in left-wing movements. So I help to translate to things that are going on in the rest of Canada, um, but also, I mean, I'm white. And so I have a, a pretty huge amount of privilege until I talk <laughs> um, to to be able to support movements um, of people who are not white. Um, and so after many years of, of organizing within Quebec Solidaire, um, I've kind of put that aside for now. There's other people that take up that movement or that work. And, and there's there's great activists doing that. And most of my attention right now is on the fights against Islamophobia and racism in the city. And um, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we're not doing very well. Like we, we really don't have a defund the police campaign. Uh, uh, our interface with the, with the city is really, really weak. Um, and so much of our work is, is in support of the widows, the children, the survivors of the, of the attack at the St. Foy Mosque, the, the Centre Culturel Islamique de Québec, um, which is, which is, I think really important and takes a lot of work, um, and is, um, is great because it's those kinds of movements that bring together people who are all outsiders to the society, uh, where things get really desperate and sad is every time I see the far right organizing here, it's really brutal. I mean, we, we had this rally yesterday where people drove around the downtown for hours honking their horns, hours. And I was at the park with um, three kids, two of them mine, and it was just nonstop honking, honking, honking of these fucking pieces of shit, anti-mask motherfuckers. And, um, and I, you know, I walked <laughs> like 
the, the, the road is here and the park is right here. And so I'm hearing it nonstop. And as we were walking to the park, I'm just giving the finger to everyone. Right. And this woman starts screaming at me in French. And the fact that I can't just insult her is really, really brutal. Right. So I just started yelling every fucking swear word I can think of in French, but it's meaningless to me. So I would say if you really value being able to yell at strangers, um, it's very difficult <laughs> in a second language or third language or fourth. Hello. Love Hello. the show. Hey. I uh, I do my own podcast called Imperial News, where all I do is listen to rebel content constantly. So uh, <laughs> I have a high tolerance of listening to uh, boring, stupid bullshit. So, uh, <laughs> which kind of gets to my question, which is, uh, I was a, a TA at Western University. I recently dropped out of my uh, PhD program. Congratulations! <laughs> what? what were you? Saying? I was doing it. Drop, yeah, dropped was, uh, out of uh, a PhD program. Yes, I was doing a, a PhD in philosophy. Oh. Uh, yes, <laughs> very uh, not practical and uh, realized that the financial strain was causing way too much harm to my mental health and was not worth it. Because like once I was outside of my four year funding period, I was like met with the decision. Do I keep throwing money at this thing, which uh, in a large respect is a novelty project? I think a worthwhile novelty <laughs> project, because <laughs> I think learning is something that you should do just for the sake of learning. Right. But uh, it reaches a point where it's like, can I afford this? Probably not. You know, and so I made the decision and uh Dropped out and then got hit with a pandemic. So <laughs> now I'm uh, unemployed during a pandemic. But uh, while I was a, a TA, I was a member of PSAC uh, as well and involved in the, the labor community as well as working with the London and District Labor Council that's in town. And one of the things that I find uh, with organizing with them, but also organizing with uh, the local NDP is there's a huge age discrepancy in a lot of these things. And as much as like, I don't want to be an ageist. I mean, I, there's some of these uh, old folks uh, in these groups that are radical and awesome and I love to work with them, but a lot of them are not that. <laughs> and not only are they not that, uh, they're boring as hell. In fact, like a lot of these meetings and like I've gone to so many, in fact, I had a, we had an NDP AGM today that again was boring as hell. <laughs> and there's a, an element in which you know, I do a podcast where all I do is listen to someone who's boring as hell. Like I have a tolerance for that, but it is so hard to try to get younger people or, or anyone really involved to want to sit through these hour, two hour, three hour long meetings of just boringness. And yet those are, are at least where some of the funding sources are, where there actually is some organizational structure to like latch onto. So I don't know. Uh, I guess the long question is, is there anything we could do about that? Or do you have any suggestions uh, in that? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, one of the things, like, here's my hypothesis, and it is born out of experience. Unions are so, fo unions and I guess the NDP, I, I have not, I've never been to, a, to an NDP meeting at all. So I don't, I don't know what those are like, but I imagine that they're similar to union meetings. Unions are so focused on control rather than engagement that everything becomes boring because uh, the, the people who are in charge are trying to control every minute of con the convention of the meeting of whatever, which could be such a amazing 
an amazing space for people to become engaged, uh, to, to, to deepen radical thought, to, to build radical uh, demonstrations. But they're so like nervous about what will happen if the membership actually uses this democracy that they plan every single minute to make sure that there's no way that the membership can be involved in the democracy. <laughs> and it's boring. Why wouldn't it be boring? Because you you went to a meeting hoping to be involved in the meeting, but instead you're like watching a show that has nothing to do with anything. Where folks are pretending at you that um, this is like really important work that we're doing. And then at the end, it's like, we've done such important work over the last three days. And you're like, what? I didn't do anything. Like I sat here and I watched a bunch of things happen. There were like a bunch of things flying on a screen and I don't really understand why I was here. <laughs> um, the joke is that there are there are democratic structures and the folks who are in charge are really nervous that people will use them. And so part of it is to try to figure out how to infiltrate that. And you 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 can kind of see uh, evidence of that over the years. There's been like a story here or a story there of an individual who's tried to do it and um, has exposed something wrong at the NDP or at uh, any particular uh, union. I think where those things fail is when they are so individual. If... There are a bunch of people who decide to take over one of these organizations using their own democratic structures. I think they will be, um, they could be really successful. Part of the problem is that um, people are are kept away from the rules, are kept away from all of the all of the the, the things that 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 control the structure in order for the union or for the NDP or for whatever organization to control the whole thing. And if there's anyone on the line who's who's like a union member who's part of that control, for fuck's sake, just relinquish some of the control. Like it can only it's like okay, so you might have to argue your position once or twice, like. <laughs> Who cares? Like, it's totally fine. We, I mean, we dealt with this in the student movement, too. Um, you know, there was this like this insistence uh, at, from from certain folks that they really wanted to control every piece of everything to try to um, resist, uh, you know, people throwing off the plan. Like, who cares? Let's, let's get a little plan thrown off. Every, you know, like the, the what's the worst that could happen? Like, we have to have an argument or people decide on something and you're on the other side uh, of, of, of the decision, like who cares? That should, that should be something that we contend with in our lives. <laughs> who cares? Um, so yeah, I totally hear you. Um, and I think that we uh, need to challenge our, our unions and take over our unions and uh, the NDP and organizations to, to, to change that, that uh, status quo way of moving in the world. It's so boring. Like who wants boring politics? Who wants boring politics? You gotta make this shit fun. Mm. Um, Tamara, I'm going to come to you next, but I just want to say quickly that, uh, one of the big culture shocks for me when I moved to Quebec from Ontario was how these meetings, political meetings I was, I was in were not at all structured. And so the difference between these structured, boring meetings where, you know, the outcome is going to be probably predetermined and a meeting where like you're really not sure what's going to happen and you're actually invested in one side or another side or another side, it really does change the way that you interact. And so on one hand, I do think that we need to be like 
comfortable with the fact that not meetings are not for everybody. Like there are, there are many people that just do not have the stomach, the time, the interest to sit through a meeting, even if it is exciting. So then we have to find other ways to get those folks involved, whether that's through art or events or campaigns or whatever. But for the folks who are interested in meetings, which is not going to just skew old. I mean, it skews to all ages having that open debate space is amazing. And like, I would be in meetings where I was just like, oh my God, we debated something like into the ground. Wasn't that boring? And I, my friends were like, wait, oh no, it was great. We had a debate, right? And you're like, right. Because they just came to this thing. They knew it was going to be three hours of arguing over whatever. And it really does having that agency that you can change what's happening makes things a lot less boring. And finding a way to, to dislodge this, I think, is the biggest challenge because people do view it as, unfortunately, as a threat. Hi, thanks for creating this space. This is super cool. My question, I guess, goes back to something I noticed um, over the summer. I work in arts administration and um, what I noticed, especially in Toronto arts institutions, is that there's some kind of just like desire to help John Tory rehabilitate his reputation that arts institutions that will say like Black Lives Matter and will say that they stand with artists um like they just can't separate themselves from him and I understand like part of it is uh grants and funding and they rely on the city for those things um but how do you or like I guess how can we um, like work within these institutions knowing how like the grants and like the funding bodies work when these institutions like inherently kind of think they're very progressive and left leaning and they understand the language and they know how to kind of use it to their advantage. Um, yeah, how do we just like navigate those relationships? Um, Cause it's seeming like pretty bleak right now <laughs> in trying to get people um, in like the higher up positions to understand the ways they perpetuate like white supremacy and classism and all of those mm. issues. Oh my gosh. You've actually pointed out so many issues in that small statement. So many issues. And the biggest one being that uh, arts funding in this country is fucking abysmal because art funding is abysmal. People have to, you know, really compromise their beliefs or their art, like what they are producing altogether um, in order to to make themselves available to get these or make themselves eligible to get these really paltry grants, which will then, you know, um, ends up with you standing next to John Tory being like, thank you so much for this pittance of money. And it's really, really fucked up. Like Canada in the world, Canada is absolutely terrible at arts funding and it results in this kind of thing. I actually don't know the answer to the, your question. Like, it's so hard. Like, what do you do? You know, when you are so like, they've really, the way that uh, uh, politicians have exerted power over artists in this country, they've really, really constrained um, how people can express themselves. Um, I know, uh, you know, the team that I work with in BLM Canada, we've started uh, this uh, arts hub called Wild Seed Center for Arts and Activism, where we're trying to change the way that we engage with these types of grants and so on. And so hopefully, like, we'll see. It's like an experiment. It's it's a different way of doing things. 
uh, where we hope that we can remain like uh, fully independent to these types of things and and uh, support specifically black art uh, across Canada. Um, but, you know, we're, we're just trying a thing. We're trying something new, noticing that this very same thing that you've just pointed out. Um, but I think if there's one thing that, you know, if there's one thing, one of the most amazing things that artists uh, bring to us in this world is the ability to be um, so effectively subversive. And so I think that there are ways that even if, you know, we are constrained by um, the, the fucking granting cycle and the way that uh, politicians um, encroach upon art, artistic work, um, uh, it's going to be in that subversion of the product of what comes forth, what art is created. Um, and uh, beyond that, I think we have to try to make our own new models and so that's that's what we're trying to do right now um and yeah i don't know if that fully answers the questions but there's so many problems you know that um that really the root is in how power engages with art and so um you know thank you for raising that because it's such a it's such a fucking major issue but it's not just like the arts community that deals with this uh it's also like the not-for-profit industrial complex Right. Like there's so many really important service organizations, shelters, food banks, like like so many organizations that help people across Canada. This is not only a Toronto issue, although obviously these issues exist in Toronto, who are more than happy to stand up with John Tory, accept the novelty check, be like, this guy's great. Right. As if like, I mean, who doesn't remember John Tory's like disastrous run for uh, premier in 2007? I remember it. It was a joke. Um, so the, the other thing that I think we need to think about is how, like in that question of subversiveness, how do we uh, do activism as individuals that then doesn't threaten the professional work that we're doing? And that's where having organizations is so important because it allows you to be kind of anonymous through an organization, like an activist organization that then, you know, your night work can be hidden from your day job and your day job is not threatened by the fact that you volunteer for uh, an organization that is confronting Tory. And maybe, maybe, you know, you personally, if you hold a, a position of some sort of, um, not power, but like recognition within the organization, you're not going to occupy John Tory's office yourself, but you create those, those organizations, those kind of not front groups, but a front to allow you to participate in radical action um, that doesn't then put those organizations into into jeopardy. And I think that the path to activism, to, to activism that works, has to go through that zigzag approach to getting getting things done. Um, because it isn't just arts organizations, though arts organizations also suffer from, I mean, there's a real strong flaky tendency among some artists as well. And so then that's also, if you're an artist on this call, like uh, artists have a job to help radicalize other artists because um, that's a different language. Artists speak a different language. And um, oftentimes it's artists that have to be able to bring artist friends into the fold. One thing I will say about this pandemic is I have seen uh, artists taking radical, more radical stances than I've ever seen before. Um, and so I'm really encouraged by that. And I feel like that is, it's like, if you see just like any kind of organizing, if you see someone who's saying something that's like really great and you're like surprised by it, it's like, 
get on top of them, message them, figure out what's where they're at, try to see if they might support the stuff that you're involved in, in this kind of thing. And, and then find that off hours way to be involved progressively or in an activist way. Hey, how are you folks today? Great. Um, so I jumped in this call a little bit late, so I hope my question wasn't already asked. Um, it's very similar to actually the question Jody asked because I'm a member of like my local um, EDA and North Island Powell River, and it's I'm basically the only member that's under a certain age for sure. <laughs> um, but one of the things I was also thinking about was, I mean, with the NDPs particularly, and uh, the stream that Jugmeet just did with AOC and all of that, I was wondering, you know, I, I'm very, I'm very mixed on it. I thought it was really fun, but at the same time, I feel like it's very sensationalized and there needs to be so much more done to reach out to younger folks. Um, and yeah, I was just wondering if you folks had any opinions on like that whole thing or that whole way of reaching out. I mean, I'm not a gamer, so it's so hard <laughs> to see how it was done. But here's what I think. I feel like we, uh, as I've said before, like, you know, the the best way to organize is to go to where people are already organized. It appears that there's this thing called Twitch where people go to, like, have some sort of engagement on a game, <laughs> which feels to me like a place where people are organized. So, yeah, there should absolutely be engagement there. Um what would be, you know, if I had listened to it, I would be able to tell you if I think that the engagement was political enough, if it did the right thing, which is like the question that we need to ask ourselves. Was it actually a place where power was being either subverted or spoken to or um, uh, critiqued? Was there education happening at the same time? Were we um, trying to recruit people in some ways? Like, I understand the the kind of like, Oh, this feels like a, a weird like celebrity thing. Like I get that that critique, but you know, for me it's just like, you know, if if there's power that's being uh confronted, I don't really care. <laughs> like that's just and that's just my orientation. Like that may not be everybody's orientation, but that's my orientation. Like if power is being confronted in some way and it and it makes a positive effect on culture, then I think that's useful. Um is the discussion that AOC, Jagmeet, and Hassan, right? That's that guy's name who used to be with the Young Turks. Um, if are, Did they have uh, an actual, uh, you know, effective type of conversation? That's the questions that we should be asking ourselves. And we shouldn't be afraid to critique those things and to, to um, um, tell them, like, actually, what you did wasn't AOC congratulating Canadians for being progressive. Yeah, that definitely happened. <laughs> I fucking hate Americans, man. <laughs> They're so, so annoyingly, like, focused on themselves. They have no idea what the fuck else is going on outside in the world. <laughs> like, it's just so annoying because, like, the rest of us need to know everything about the United States, but they don't know a fucking thing about about Canada. Like, I, I, I you know, was involved in a small story. I was involved in some sort of, like, watch party when the election uh, results were coming in. And, you know in this watch party were a bunch of Canadians and a, and a bunch of uh, folks who are American just because, you know, I know Canadians out here. And, you know, we were, as Canadians, talking about particular states. And then someone remarked, like, oh, man, it's so interesting that you guys who aren't even from here, like, know all the states. I'm like, is it interesting? Is it? <laughs> Imperial nation? <laughs> like, do you even know where I'm from? And nobody knew 
no one person in the in the watch party knew, had heard of Ontario as they as they as they succeeded. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just it was like really it's uh, just it's so fucking annoying um, the way that imperialism impacts the lack of knowledge of Americans. But yeah, all that is to say, fuck if if they were you know like that is an ineffective. Uh, engagement with power because AOC then clearly doesn't understand power um, and in the way that it exists beyond the borders of the United States because Canada is in fact complicit and helpful in the power and as Justin Trudeau was quite helpful to Trump in some of the power that he exerted around the world and if she doesn't know that then she shouldn't be fucking speaking on it it's just like completely unacceptable and so um, could be helpful sounds like um, there were some places where it had deficiencies yeah like I'm seeing in the chats like they raised a lot of money so if the ndp's goal was to reach people to raise money right which it may have been then it would have been very successful um i have a like a friend that i dm with all the time and this is a guy who first found me um after the humboldt stuff and uh was very critical and then we became friends because we've been talking politics now for two and a half years and after that he said uh, oh my god nora you have to you and sandy have to do something like that and I said, if, if I did a video game thing, I would, you'd be watching me for two hours running into a wall. I mean, I don't do video games. I could do Mario one, right? I love that shit. I could do Mario. Right. Yeah. Like we I could, could do super smash brothers. We could do that. Right? I could do duck hunt. I could do Tetris. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> Kirby's pinball, which is actually like a glorious game, but that's really dated. Um, and, but Mario Kart. Uh, yeah. I mean, sure. Battle Scrabble or Scrabble on Twitch. Battle yeah. frogs. <laughs> Battle Frogs. <laughs> I don't know what Oh, that Battle is. Frogs was amazing. Frogger, though. Also good, too. Taking it back. That's good, too. But, you know, th- then he said to me, but actually, you don't have to do video games. Like, the thing about Discord is is you're, you, you are there, and you can do whatever you want. Like, people just talk. Sometimes people shoot the shit. Sometimes people deconstruct the news. And so then I was like, well, then why didn't Jugmeet do, like, a fucking, hey, check out my mixed martial arts or something that's, like, super authentic to him. Uh, where, you know, then he can talk politics. But then, so then the question becomes how much of this is uh, appealing to this idea that this is popular versus what is authentically interesting to him. Um, And that's a limit because if there, if, 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 again, if you're not talking about politics in a way that brings people into a political world view that you have, then there's no point. Um, Because other than, otherwise, then you're just raising money for the party and the party needs to raise money, but that's, that's a different kind of politics. And I think that we need to be honest about, about that. So mixed bag. Hi, I'm doing my hair because it's Sunday night. Um, (laughs) I haven't seen you in so long. Good to see you. Well, you know, you do distant call living in California. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's your own fault. Yeah, um, I although know, I think I would like to be in California right now because the sweater is not great. I am um, wearing a t shirt. <laughs> yeah, I would need to put tights, boots, and a coat to go outside. Yep. <laughs> yeah, no, not, not happening. Um, but, um, you know what's something that's like interesting, and you talked about like imperialism of the U.S. in some ways, and the way we we know more, I feel, about what's happening outside in the U.S. And I noticed that from listening. I mostly listen to some from Montreal. I mostly listen to news in French, um, and I felt like I got to know so much about Arizona and Georgia and the county system in the last election that I actually know about what's happening in Saskatchewan or in Nunavut or even in Nova Scotia in terms of COVID right now. And something I keep wondering, as a francophone who's fully bilingual, who works, you know, in some way nationally, and as a lot of friends across the country, 
I'm able to know and get some tidbits of information, but most people aren't able to do that. Mm-hmm. Canada as a whole and Canadian news, and even when I listen to CBC Montreal, so maybe CBC Toronto is different, have very little knowledge about what's happening outside. Mm. Right. And I'm always wondering, you know, I know that like Canada Land had like Emilie Nicola recently to, you know, get people to talk about what's happening in Quebec, but it was mostly Montreal. And then there was an episode about what's happening in Manitoba or Northern Ontario. Um, but how do we do that? How do we get to know and how do we meet, especially as progressive people? And as someone who's not unionized and I'm not going to join a political party just to be like, how do we change this country that we live in? in a way that we're not able to, if we don't even know what's happening, like, you know, an hour away from, you know, by far, by car from where we live. How do we change the country, Nora? Oh my God. <laughs> no, I hear you, but it was like the question. It's a, That's the question. It's, but it's so funny because like, Karen, I don't know if you have the same experience, but in Quebec City, when I first moved here, and I used to talk about like um, student union mo- meetings. And I was like, yeah, we had to, you know, f- people had to fly to come to our meetings. And they were like, what do you mean they had to fly? I'm like, Canada is very big. And they're like, what do you mean? Right. And they're like, these are educated people, but they just have no idea outside of Quebec. It's like, I was like, well, you know, like British Columbia, right? It's fucking far. They're like, okay, yeah, I'm with you. Okay. So Vancouver, right? That's five hours from fucking Montreal, right? Okay. North of Vancouver by two and a half hours by plane are, are other students, right? So we had to fly them down to Vancouver, then over to Ottawa twice a year. And they're like, what? You had to do that? Right. <laughs> and I was like, Okay, wow, Radio Canada really doesn't really like go through those like regional realities, but it's not just a Quebec thing. Um, like the work that Sandy and I did, like when you when you travel across Canada as much as we have and much as we got to do as student activists, you realize that this country is like one hundred percent fake, <laughs> right? The folks in fucking Saskatoon are very different people than folks in Sudbury. And folks in Sudbury are very different people than folks in Kitchener-Waterloo, right? Like we have this mindset that we're all the same in this country and we are 100% not. There are really interesting different cultural, regional, linguistic things that happen in Canada and the media concentration pushing everything in English Canada to Toronto makes the Toronto accent, the Toronto perspective be the foundation of Canadian English identity in this country. And Montreal plays a similar role, although a little bit different because of how white outside of Montreal is compared to Montreal, right? There's a a dynamic difference there. Um, and, And so that means that like, I mean, when I say to someone like, oh, I hate Vancouver, people are like, what the fuck are you talking about? You can't hate Vancouver. Vancouver's the greatest place in the world, right? And it's just like, uh, I mean, I kind of hate it. Uh, no offense to anyone on the call from Vancouver. <laughs> but but there, there, there are these incredible cultural differences that we got to see on campus, right? That we got to see instantly the second that we set foot on a campus, whether that was fucking Acadia or fucking, I don't know, Laurentian or Windsor or Saskatoon or whatever, right? Or Simon Fraser. My God, that was the worst fucking two weeks of my life spent at Simon Fraser. (laughs) Vancouver. (laughs) My feet were, my feet were wet for two and a half weeks straight. Like they did not dry in Simon Fraser. Never met such unkind people in my fucking life. (laughs) I mean, they go to school in a cloud. Like the whole place is very weird. (laughs) Sorry if you're at Simon, Simon Fraser, you should speak up and say, what the fuck? But um, but we the, the the media in this country has a job of manufacturing a unified identity 
because they don't want Canada to break up. They don't want Canadians to realize that Canada is actually completely fake. And the problem is, is that like we also then buy into it and then we don't understand the regional differences when we're trying to figure out modes of solidarity and how to help one another and how to how, like do like activist work across these across these divides. Um, and so we have to create those spaces. This is, I think, that that's a big message from my own book. Um, and certainly I think that that was the reason that the student movement was so strong and the labor movement as well, is that you're forcing people to bring to come together. Whether or not you produce anything out of that is kind of a different question. But you force people to come together and then people actually realize, oh, my God, there's an accent in Calgary if you're from Toronto. Like they have an accent in Calgary. What the fuck? Right. Um, and you just don't realize this unless you actually have that opportunity to, to travel. So how do left wing organizations give activists the money and the resources to do that kind of work? Um, I think that that is fundamental to doing anything in this country that is going to put pressure on the federal government because the federal government depends on federalism and it depends on the legitimacy that it holds within regions across Canada. Uh, so I was wondering, because I don't think I'm very well suited to go to many protests, I do try to go when I can, but I was wondering, like, how to get more involved in, like, behind-the-scenes stuff and what sort of behind-the-scenes stuff you think is, like, most needed. All right, I can start. I mean, I think one of the things, uh, I mean, there's a couple answers to your question. Well, there, I'm sure there's tons of answers to your question, but a couple that come to mind right away is that um, in order to get involved in anything, you just got to get involved. And so uh, joining an organization, um, first of all, and then the thing is that everyone's always looking for people to do behind the scenes work because a lot of people join activist organizations uh, because they see what happens on television and the television or the newspapers only focus on a small, small, like 10% of what activist organizations do. And so people join being like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, be on TV and I'm going to be shutting down a building or something. And it's like, okay, that happens like almost never. Most of it's like research and writing <laughs> and really boring meetings, which is just like strategic work. So uh, a lot of times when people figure this out and, you know, black organizations are dealing with this across uh, the world right now, all these people who joined in the summer and were like, oh, man, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And it's like, yeah, there's a lot of work that needs to happen. And uh, and then people leave because it's not as exciting or not as fun as they thought it was going to be. Um, so, uh, fear not, there's lots of, uh, room or lots of need for people doing background work. The other thing is if joining organizations is not for you, um, or you can't find one in your location or that really speaks to you writing, if you can, if you can write or even like speak, like if it's a, if it's a podcast or something, you know, like anything that you can do to put your ideas out there. I really encourage people to work in groups to try to um, to refine your ideas as much as possible, sharpen them, you know, um, iron sharpens iron or whatever the, the, the saying is, you know, if you if you are able to throw your ideas off somebody who can give you feedback and throw it back or whatever, and then you start writing or you start speaking or whatever and putting your ideas out there, got like there's such a dearth of people doing good writing work across this country as we kind of like started today with talking about. Like we need, we need, we need, we need so much more of that. What do you think, Nora? 
Oh, that's no, that's it. Like, I think the, the best way to find out what's necessary is being in touch with organizers and organizations. And if you can't go to meetings and you can't participate in decision making, just say, hey, what kind of tasks do you have? And they'll tell you. And then you're in a position to say, oh, I have that talent. I can do that. Or, ooh, is there anything else? That's not my that's not my thing. Next question. And I am looking at the clock, too. So we'll go through these last three questions. Yeah, we're going to take the last three all together and then we'll try to, to wrap it up uh, in answering those last three. I'm not going to take up much time. I'm just going to say that I absolutely love the podcast. I uh, heard you, Nora, I think for the first time on Canada land, like early in the summer. And I was like, who is this person who's just dropping F-bombs at politicians all over the place? And uh, that's what got me turned on your podcast and uh yeah i just love it very much and uh it's uh it's like really important in my life and uh i just love the work you're doing and uh keep it up so i'll let i'll i'll just let you move on to the next question thanks i just wanted to say sandy um i'd like to thank you and all the folks at black lives matter lives matter toronto um for all the work that you did during that 2016 year um with pride um, that was like such a seminal moment for me in my development as a human being and as a budding sort of leftist and activist. And there was one pretend in particular that was hosted by the folks at I think Blockorama and Blackness Yes, that like totally turned into this amazing experience where all of the white people were basically told to leave their seats and make room for black people and that to this day is by far one of the coolest experiences and most wild experiences I've ever had so I just I've been dying to say that for the last four years and I just need to get that out but <laughs> anyways my question is um so I work in uh public health and of course like everything we are surrounded and dominated by COVID and um, I find more and more, even in our own sphere, we're supposed to be focused on preventative measures and, you know, social determinants of health. And even more and more, we start getting boiled down into these individual sort of um, responsibilities about how individuals can protect themselves from COVID, whether it's masking or staying away or, you know, trying not to go out and things like that. So I'm trying to think, how do we shift the conversation amongst even just everyday people um, to focus more on the structural issues and what our government is not doing for us and what they're not providing to us, whether it be um, income support or just rent freeze or or anything, any of the structural things that you guys always talk about the podcast that I'm applauding and also banging my head against the wall when I don't hear those things from our politicians. Thank you for that question. Um, there's another there's a question in the uh, chat also that is. How do we move the conversation on trans and non-binary rights forward? A lot of activism asks trans and non-binary people to be visible and tell our stories, which is important, but it feels like we keep having the same basic conversations forever. How do we get beyond simply telling our stories and how do we get people past the basics? Um, and then I'll ask Maddie to ask your question and then Nora and I will address uh, everything together as our final final responses. Um, I'm honestly pretty happy to like just wave uh, my question because no, there's no, no, no. ask your question, ask your yeah, question, yeah, yeah. ask it. Um, well, if you want to then include like a little um, feminism, uh, that would maybe fit into these topics. Um, I feel like uh, these days, turfs seem to have like so much of the um, 
air to air play of like feminist whatever. I certainly feminist, but it is in the acronym. Um, so like, what, what? I don't know. Like, how do we? How do we? create a better um like image for feminism leftism considering the fact that so many concepts that are feminist uh and also like anti-racist and also decolonial like these at least in academic settings or whatever like that's my that's my request a little discussion <laughs> but thank you all so much thanks on the public health question i think that um certainly i have been really like preoccupied by this as well. How do we shift the, the narrative um, onto these structural issues? And I'm writing a book actually right now on how journalists shaped how we understand the COVID crisis. And so I've been thinking about this quite a lot. Um, and I don't really have a very good answer for you because I think that the reality is, is that journalism, like the concentration of, of journalism in this country is such that they are obsessed and neoliberalism, they are obsessed with looking at that individual impact and um, talking about these more structural things is it, it seems to be impossible, even though we know that like you look at a community and you're like, oh, my God, there's so much community spread. How do we stop this community spread? It's like, have we poured money into the communities most affected by this yet? Have we poured money into racialized and low income communities yet? Oh, we haven't. How about we start there? But the problem is, is that this is where public health butts up against the inherently political nature of, of, of its work. Right. And um, as bureaucrats, right, as, as, as people who are, are, are both serving elected officials, but also trying to like perform the science and the research onto what's the best kind of course of action to protect public health. Um, I think that this is where we need to talk about that role that public health plays within a broader world of an elected politician, elected uh, government um, that is shitty and that doesn't actually give a rat's ass about public health and doesn't give a rat's ass about the about the. Um, opinions of the experts. Um, I, I don't know, Sandy, do you want to do issue at a time back and forth? Or you want me to go through all of them? We can do an issue at a time back and forth. So okay. um, the only thing I would have to, to add to that is that, gosh, like uh, public health is such a um, a place where where people, I've, I've noticed more folks talking about how, you know, the, the ideas of public health shouldn't be political. Let's not politicize the pandemic. Let's not, you know, talk, but without the understanding that everything about public health is inherently uh, political and we need to be able to to speak about it in that way like we i don't know if folks saw the the maps that were released um in toronto recently where you could um you know see the map of uh where uh folks are um at most risk for the virus or where where people are contracting covid-19 the most uh fits you know looks like exactly like the map of income inequality uh, uh, uh in toronto looks exactly like the map of where uh, people who are the most racialized are living, like where racialized people are living, especially black and indigenous people are living. And I, I, if you're paying attention to what's going on in the States, like they've released uh, new data recently that um, one out of every 850 residents of North Dakota, I believe, where there's a high indigenous population has COVID-19 or has died from COVID-19. I think it's like a really uh, intense statistic. And in South Dakota, it's one of every thousand people have died from uh, COVID-19. It's the whole thing is fucking political. Like the whole thing is fucking political. And when we think back and hearken back to the moments where we th see things like Justin Trudeau and blackface and people saying, 
that's just you know boys will be boys he was young then you know as a fucking almost 30 year old or whatever you know whatever it is like those are the moments where you see how little like uh, certain people matter uh to to the folks in power how they see us as 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 not human like they, we are dehumanized people and then we see how that um manifests in the policies that come out later because as long as the curve is flattened for a certain subset of our society it's fine we don't need to do much more rich white folks are safe we can now just turn the tide and blame every out the rest of what whatever is happening um on on individuals and that's obviously completely unacceptable um but it's you know we have to understand public health is an inherently political uh issue and we have to tackle it in a political way Totally. Okay. Jake's question about how do we move the conversation on trans non-binary rights forward? So the way that I see this question and the answer to this question is this, the, the movement for civil rights for trans and non-binary people is like the one movement that has kind of come into the mainstream fully in the era of neoliberalism, right? Like movements for gay and and lesbian liberation, movements for black liberation, like they all have kind of like, they kind of made mainstream, they did make mainstream um, noise and attention, capture mainstream noise and attention in different eras. But trans and non-binary people's liberation is coming to age, coming to the mainstream today, which is in a neoliberal world. And in a neoliberal world, the only thing that power is interested in is that individual, uh, that individual. So, so you interact with your government as an individual, right? They break apart our communities. And because of that, I think, uh, activism has often looked like I'm talking about my experience. My experience is, is the way that I'm going to do activism right now. And, um, and so how do you get past that? I think it, first of all, requires this analysis that this is the world that we're in, that, that trans and non-binary activists are acting out in a world that has been constructed to privilege the individual, to privilege this notion that through talking about being trans is in itself liberation, right? And feminism looks a lot like that right now, right? Me Too is a campaign of just talking about being, you know, having been sexually harassed or sexually abused and through talking about it, somehow naming an abuser or naming the trauma, you will find liberation, right? That is the great lie of neoliberalism. And so how do we get past this and move towards a place where we are actually looking at broader um, implications, uh, broader understandings, broader rights frameworks for trans and non-binary people. I think um, for people on the left, I think that there was such a huge mistake made in general, not taking Jordan uh, Peterson seriously, when so many trans and non-binary activists were like, this is a code red. Jordan Peterson is making his career off of the backs of dehumanizing trans and non-binary people, and he's trivializing it in this discussion of pronouns, right? Not to say pronouns themselves are trivialized or trivial, but like he was making this a question of fucking grammar, right? And, um, and that unfortunately put the movement into this back foot having to respond to, to Peterson alone 
without the support of other activist movements around to be able to say, we see what they're saying. We see what he is doing and we are going to call it out too. I think that has changed. I think now you will more often see people name the transphobia inherent in why someone like Jordan Peterson got successful, but also you see it across other kinds of far right movements. Um, and actually I will tie in this question about turf fascists into this as well, because, um, and, 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 you know, so turfs, of course, trans, exclusionary radical feminists are actually fascists in my mind and a lot of the mind of other people. So I call them turf fascists because they are, I mean, they say that they're radical feminists. It's like, okay, fine. Like, sure. You fucking liar. But, um, like anything that tries to entrench something as fucking arbitrary as the gender binary is obviously fascist. Like it's obviously the state saying, oh, you, you think you know better than us. You think that you aren't a woman. Huh? guess what? We know you're a fucking woman, right? It's like, that doesn't make any sense. That makes absolutely no sense, right? The, the sense is that we allow people to say, uh, I am who I am. And then the state is like, okay, we're accommodating that. That makes sense, right? And so it is a fascist form of control to make sure that the gender binary is policed. And that's why in Canada, I mean, I think that true fascism globally is not, and, and I mean, if I'm wrong, I want people to correct me. I want people to message me, but I don't, I feel like it is not as bad in Canada as it is in other countries, as it is in England, as it is in Australia. However, we are producing some of the individual intellectual leaders of transfascist thought. So they're not necessarily popular in Canada, but they're going elsewhere to the rest of the world to help organize trans activists. And it's like, hmm, where have I seen that before? I know the far right where the influence that Canadian far-right activists have, sure, there's some influence in Canada, but they're far more influential in the United States and in European far-right movements. And this is where we need to see turf fascism, regardless of these, if these fucking people call themselves feminists, regardless if they have bona fides, having done feminist work for, for decades, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because lots of people age out of being progressive, right? Even if you age out of being progressive at the age of 30, guess fucking what? It's about what you are professing to be uh, the, a leftist perspective. And there's nothing leftist about turf fascism, which is why in Canada it is so much stronger coming from the right, right? It's a far right ideology first in Canada. And then there might be some folks in Vancouver that are like, oh, it's leftist as well. And it's like, it's not fucking leftist. Go fuck yourself. Vancouver. So, I mean, yeah, now we're going to shit on Vancouver again, even though there's so <laughs> many, we have so many fans of Vancouver. We love Vancouver. I know, we love we're going to come to Vancouver as soon as we can. We love very specific people in Vancouver. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly <laughs> what we love is the people, very specific people. <laughs> Um, and so how, how do we get trans and non-binary people to be able to not just tell their stories over and over and hope to, to make change? Uh, feminism needs to understand that, um, first of all, there is no essentialist uniting feature of being a woman that then unites us in our struggle, okay? The fact that I am a woman, the fact that Sandy is a woman does not make us have similar struggle on its own. There are certainly some aspects of the world that might be common to some subset of the population. But I mean, you know, look at look at the whole uh, the way that we talk about feminism in the fucking uh, pandemic. It has been re reduced to, to people who have children. Right. Childcare is the only solution that has been given as a feminist response to this fucking pandemic. And it's like childcare benefits men as much as it benefits women, as much as it benefits non-binary people, be 
but what's the uniting thing? The folks that have kids. You have to have fucking kids for it to benefit you in a direct way, right? And so like we have to be calling this out and pushing back against these bullshit narratives that essentialize womanhood into some kind of common thing. And I mean, this is what women have been doing, feminists have been doing, non-binary and trans folks have been doing for fucking decades to call out mainstream white feminism as being completely bullshit for trying to say that we have this uniting experience and we do not. But that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as feminism. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a gendered understanding and a feminist understanding. And this is where I go to the theories of, of queer black women who've been organizing in Canada for decades uh, to be able to break open this like, no, no, white feminism, white feminism that maintains the gender binary is colonial and it upholds colonial patriarchy in this country called Canada. And guess fucking what? If your feminism isn't going to undo that colonialism, if it's not going to undo that patri- um, that the racism inherent in the gender binary, it's also not going to be fucking successful. And I just wrote a book about this. So, you know, check it out. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't have much to add to what Nora just said, but the one thing that I will add is that, yeah, we're seeing the same stories over and over and over. And one thing to understand there is that that's because power will only accept a certain type of nonconformity with our hegemonic systems. And it will say, okay, we accept this, we accept you going this far. And we will use our power to say, ah, oh, look at how great we are for accepting this, this thing that we have deemed not normal. Like we are so wonderful because we have accepted this thing. And that's what power does. So it's going to replicate that story over and over and over again because it wants it wants trans and non-binary people to remain on the margin. Because as we've talked about in a previous episode, like the the um, the threat to the idea of gender has the potential to completely overthrow all of our systems because it's so fundamental to the way that so many of our systems operate. And so, of course, of course, they're tied to this these really specific stories. And that's not to say that those stories aren't aren't important. It's to say that it is only going to remain there um, because it benefits power in some way. And so the most important thing that we can do is recognize those patterns of why and how it helps power and uh, insist on moving beyond that. So how can we connect these issues to policy change? Because that's, that's the place where power never wants you to go. Sure. Tell your story. Sure. Like Neil. Sure. Say Black Lives Matter. Sure. Um, uh, talk about how difficult your life was and maybe even write a book. We'll make a we'll make a, a television show out of this and we'll say, man, it must be so difficult to be trans. Wow. Thank you. know, Thankfully, that person overcame such difficulty, but they never want to move to. OK, well, what are you going to do to change Healthcare in this country? What are you going to do to change change the way that education works in this country? How are you going to change public space and the way that we organize public space to be inherently gendered? How are we going to change work and the way that work is inherently gendered? How are we going to change access to housing, safety, security, food, all of these things and how they're inherently gendered? That's where power doesn't want to go. That's where power doesn't want to speak, doesn't even want to have a conversation. And that's how we know 
know that that's where we need to go. That's where we need to insist on going. Don't let power continue to have the same conversations over and over and over and over. And it's like, yes, these changes, uh, they don't necessarily have to only come through legislation. We can create these things for each other. We can recognize that legislation is one of the ways that some of these changes in our society can come about. But as I said before, you know, legislation follows culture. We have to change culture, which means we have to t- change the stories. We have to change the narratives. We have to push beyond what power is telling us. So whenever we have the opportunity, whenever we get a taste of power to have the opportunity to tell a story... We should be as bold as possible and change the narrative. Nora. Whoa. I mean, what a question. A bunch of questions to fire us up at the end. It's like, oh, I'm ready to just launch into my nightly COVID research now. (laughs) This is perfect. I'm seeing a lot of folks suggesting Discord and that we need a Discord community for Sandy Nora. I think that it's such a- put one in. Abrar put one in. It's a 20, it's a link expires. Yeah. So you'll have everyone there. I have everyone's emails as well. So I will check that out. I think that's a great idea. And Sandy and I are going to talk a little bit more after the show about how we can put a, a community together because we really do want everybody to connect. Um, and so if it goes to this link, I mean, I don't fucking understand Discord at all. So Abrar, you might have to teach me. You don't know. You don't okay. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll keep you updated about where to find uh, other folks. And that will happen, I think, soon. And then we're going to do a, a year-end show once Sandy has passed all of her exams with fucking A pluses. <laughs> really wasn't a lot of paying attention going on this year. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but once Sandy's finished, we're going to do a, a year uh, roundup for 2020. It'll be after December 18th. Okay. So we're going to take a couple of weeks off. Um, but um, that's the housekeeping. Sandy, do you want to do the amazing thank yous? Yeah, I just want to say thank you so much. Like there were 80 people on the call, which is amazing. There's 62 people still here. It's funny because, um, you know, Zoom is is really weird. And I started my Zoom room at fucking, uh, you know, granted to me by UCLA at fucking like 445. And I'm like sitting there. Um, at 5.05 and Nora's like hey I'm waiting for you and I was like what do you mean you're waiting for me I'm like in the zoom room and it turns out that I need to to click a particular link but I was like no one's gonna come to this and then sign into where Nora is and I was like oh my god there's like fucking 80 people here (laughs) (laughs) so that was really great because I really thought that no one was coming (laughs) so (laughs) thank you all for coming and joining us this was actually a lot of fun we weren't sure how this was gonna go we thought it might be unwieldy we might we thought it might not be possible but it actually worked out really, really well. So I don't know, Nora, feels like we're going to be inside for a lot of 2021, unfortunately, but this was kind of a fun way to bring people together and have some really critical discussion. And I think we can do that again. I think so. And uh, we're also working on swag for everybody. And so keep your eyes posted. We're, we've got two uh, word-based designs coming out, and then we'll probably do a mass mass production of our stickers so i don't know if they'll be out in time for the holidays but like fuck the holidays i mean celebrate fucking ishtar which is like february one right (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) so we'll we'll keep everyone posted as well as we get more information on that all right and thank you all so much for joining us we hope you have a great night um a safe holiday season uh and you know survive the winter uh, and the rest of this uh, COVID life. And we'll keep trying to 
trying to ask some difficult questions about the world to you and uh, and maybe make this Discord thing a thing if we ever figure it out. Uh, but I, I, I posted it again in the chat. I'll do it one more time. There's already a few people in that Discord room. So join it and uh, hang out with one another. And thanks so much for being such a great community. We love y'all. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm loving it. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>